Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is currently walking through the second third of Dante's masterwork comedy, Purgatorio. And we have come to the end of Purgatorio Canto 2. And in this interpolated episode of the podcast, I'm not going to go over any specific passage in Purgatorio. Instead, I would like to summarize Purgatorio Cantos 1 and 2. The reason I want to do this is because I think that they are very dramatically linked. I think that they are intentionally brought together and constructed so that they kind of hang off each other. And then I want to push out to a vertical reading of Purgatorio 1 and 2 versus Inferno 1 and 2. This is becoming an increasingly important bit of Dante's scholarship. The notion that Dante constructs comedy not only horizontally across a hundred cantos, but that he's also working vertically, and you can start to see vertical movement between cantos, say, Inferno Canto 12, Purgatorio Canto 12, and Paradiso Canto 12. It's an interesting bit of problematic scholarship. It's just coming to the fore, and I'll tell you why it's interesting when we get to the associations between Inferno's and Purgatorio's opening cantos. For the moment, let's just talk about Purgatorio 1 and 2 and how they are connected Purgatorio 1 and 2 clearly form a unit because they are bracketed by Cato's appearance. At the beginning of Canto 1, we see the sun coming up, and then suddenly this old man, Cato, appears next to Virgil and Dante. And at the end of Purgatorio 2, Cato reappears. We should note that Cato speaks three times, twice in Purgatorio 1 and once in Purgatorio 2. It seems as if both cases of his appearance at the front of Purgatorio 1 and at the back of Purgatorio 2 are threatening, threatening is too big a word to use, are chastising, are kind of abrupt. Remember, he asks them in Purgatorio 1, is there some new edict that suddenly you've appeared here? Well, clearly without the angelic boat, but that you've just walked out onto the shores of Purgatorio. The middle piece of Cato's dialogue, the second of the three times he talks, seems to be gentler and he seems to be more open to Dante. But Cato's appearances are bracketed with a kind of threatening, warning, stern uh, demeanor. <laughs> he doesn't appear that welcoming of a character. And I would argue that his appearance in both places, Purgatorio 1 and 2, show us that these two cantos are being constructed so that they're held together for reasons which we might be able to ferret out ahead. Another way we can contrast Purgatorio Cantos 1 and 2 is that Canto 1 has much more of Virgil in it. Virgil replies to Cato. It seems that Virgil goes and gets the reed and washes Dante up. Dante appears more passive in Purgatorio 1. In Purgatorio 2, Virgil almost exits the scene. I mean, he doesn't exit the scene, of course, but we kind of forget about him at the appearance of Casella, and he seems to be sidelined. This is 
interesting since Casella and Dante are talking essentially about the refreshment of poetry and somehow Virgil is sidelined in all of this. Interesting little bit of meta-textuality there. But we could definitely say that Virgil takes the center of the stage in Purgatorio 1 and Dante takes the center of the stage in Purgatorio Canto 2. I think that that's an important bit that we'll want to come back to when we talk about Inferno. A third way these two cantos are linked together is both open with astrological or astronomical phenomena. Now, The difference between astrological and astronomical in Dante's day is slight. It's not as if uh, today we see them as completely different. You know, people who believe in the signs of the zodiac and something about their fortune versus people who, I don't know, uh, measure the the hawking radiation from black holes. We see these two disciplines as very separate today. In Dante's day, not so much. And in fact, both cantos open with astrological or astronomical uh, notations. And we should also note that both move from silence to speaking back to silence. They kind of move in this progression of being quiet, of awe at the sun rising, at the sun's hunting Capricorn out of the sky. Then we get it louder with Virgil and Cato talking or with the angel arriving and Virgil's excitement and then Casella singing. And then we go back to a moment of silence, whether it be Dante having his face washed by the rush, the water plant, or the souls scattering for the mountain. It's an interesting progression that they both go from quiet to loud to quiet. So, again, they're clearly being set up in some kind of parallel with each other. A fourth way we would say these cantos are linked together is that they are increasingly crowded. We open up with Virgil and Dante, but Virgil doesn't even seem to be there in Canto 1, just Dante looking at the sun's just orange glow below the horizon. And then we get Cato, and then Virgil steps forward. Of course, Virgil's been there all along, but you know what I mean. Suddenly he's on stage with us, and we're conscious of him. And then the angel comes, and then more than a hundred souls, and then Cassila. This thing gets more and more crowded. And you'll notice as it gets more and more crowded, it starts to move more and more chaotically. It moves more fragmentedly. We would say that Canto 2 is more fragmented than Canto 1 because, it remember, it has two distinct narrative sequences in it, the arrival of the angel, the meeting of Casella, and then it has the prologue and the postlude. It has much more fragmentation to it. And then, of course, it ends with ultimate fragmentation with everybody running away. I think that it's important to see this kind of movement in it from a quiet, solitary order to an increasingly crowded stage to finally chaos. Everybody running for the mountain at Cato's rebuke. That movement tells us something about Purgatorio. Not all will be serene. Not all will be quiet in Purgatorio. We have to wait for Paradiso for everything to get very serene. Here on Purgatorio, there is a constant threat of chaos, a constant threat of disrupting theology, a constant threat 
threat of disrupting the social order. We're going to talk so much more about this in the next two cantos, three and four, which are right ahead of us. So much talk throughout Purgatorio that is so disruptive all the way down to the final sequences at the top with Beatrice. So very disruptive, moving constantly from order to disruption to a new kind of order. This is the overall repeated schematic of Purgatorio. And finally, both cantos are imbued with hesitation. And I want to talk to you a bit about this because there's an intriguing theological point that we could bring up about hesitation. And it has to do with that theology of wonder. Remember, we've been talking about that since the schismatics, the way they stop in wonder and awe at Dante, alive, embodied, walking through Inferno. And it says of the schismatics that momentarily they even forgot their pain of being divided in half and divided into pieces by the demon with the sword. And I brought up there this notion of wonder as a central tenet to Dante's theology. Okay, for whatever that's worth, think about that versus hesitation. Think about the difference between awe and hesitation. Those look a lot alike from the outside. If you're thunderstruck with wonder walking, let's say, into Notre Dame or, let's say, into, um, I don't know, the Met Museum's fantastic collection of oceanic, tribal, and Southeast Asian objects. If you're struck dumb at those moments, you also look like somebody who's just tired of walking around churches museums. I know, I know that's ridiculous, but just think about it for a minute. There is a way that hesitation and wonder exist on a continuum, and wonder can bleed back to hesitation, and hesitation can rob wonder of some of its efficacy. It can kind of, uh, what do I want to say, balance back and forth on a teeter-totter, on a board, back and forth between hesitation and wonder. Just think this through because it's really important to what's ahead of us. Wonder can slowly dissolve to hesitation or hesitation can rob wonder of its purpose. This is all kind of fascinating in the way that wonder and hesitation get linked over and over again in Purgatorio, and they're already being linked here from the wonder of the angel, the wonder of Cato, to the outright hesitation of listening to Casella sing, or even, dare I say it, watching the sun rise. Let's turn to the question of comparing Purgatorio Cantos 1 and 2 and Inferno Cantos 1 and 2, of reading them as the current terminology is vertically. Again, I just want to say that this is a fairly new way to think about Dante. It's not that Renaissance or earlier commentators didn't think vertically. They did, and they did notice parallels among the Cantos, but not as much as modern scholars. And 
Here's the problem, and uh, I'm going to lay this problem out here, but it's not one we're going to solve right now. The problem is Inferno has 34 cantos, Purgatorio has 33, and Paradiso has 33, giving us our 100 cantos. Which canto of Inferno is the outlier? If they're all in vertical arrangement with one another, which one is somehow the one lying outside? And here's the interesting answer that you kind of have to get close to. While it seems like Inferno Canto 1 is a prologue to the work, Dante wakes up in a dark wood, tries to climb the mountain, falls back down because of the beast, Virgil appears, and then the story kind of starts rolling with Virgil explaining why he's there in Inferno Canto 2. Okay, fair enough. Except Inferno Canto 1 parallels a great deal of Purgatorio Canto 1 and Paradiso Canto 1. So the outlier might well be Inferno Canto 34, the appearance of Satan and the ascent, descent, depending on which way you're facing, the ascent, descent out of hell. That might be the outlier canto in the vertical reading. It's an incredibly intriguing thing because so many critics want Inferno 1 to be a prologue to the work and then say, oh, well, Inferno really then has 33 cantos with a prologue. No, it may indeed have 33 cantos and then an epilogue the sight of Satan and the ascent out of Inferno, which may have no parallel in any other part of the poem. Oh, those are such big arguments, uh, such big concepts. We're going to have to hold them way back in abeyance and just sit with them a minute. Let's just say now what we can about the parallels between the opening of Purgatorio and the opening of Inferno. The easiest parallel, of course, is that in Inferno 1, Virgil appears, and in Purgatorio 1, Cato appears. Now, let's say there's a difference here, and this is what's so interesting about them. When Virgil appears, he appears to save Dante. Dante falls down that hill, calls out miserere, and this shade appears out of nowhere. But when Cato appears, he appears to be more threatening, dire. What are you doing here? Get off my mountain. <laughs> get off my sure, get off my lawn. Oh, I like that. Cato and get off my lawn. Cato and Virgil's appearances have different effects. And you should think about it this way too. Virgil is a poet. And when he appears, Dante recognizes him first and foremost as a poet. When Cato appears, Virgil recognizes Cato first and foremost as a character out of Lucan. Cato was a historical personage, but the references around him are of him as a character in other pieces of poetry. So that's an interesting dichotomy between the two appearances, the appearance of a poet and the appearance of a character out of poetry, but still both Roman citizens 
Well, <laughs> Cato is a little problematic with his suicide. Certainly a citizen of the Republic, not the Empire. Virgil, a citizen of the Empire, not necessarily the Republic. But, I mean, he is, but Virgil is much more the poet of the Empire. Uh, so the difference between them is pronounced, and yet, of course, we have these two Romans appear at the beginning of each canticle. I should put a side note here. Virgil does appear to walk out into the real world. Remember how I made this big deal about Casella walks out into the real world and apparently wanders around when he won't get in the angel's boat and then even when he's not allowed to get in the angel's boat. And I said, well, we must have the dead walking around this world of the living. Maybe Virgil does too. <sighs> this is difficult. So it all Depends on whether you think the dark wood in Inferno 1 is part of this world or part of the opening of a dreamscape. If you think it's the opening of a dreamscape, then no, Virgil has not entered the physical world in the way that Casella is wandering around it. But we might say that that dark wood is actually in this world, given the way it exists in Brunetto Latini's work. In which case, Virgil is also able to walk around this world while dead. It's, it's all a matter of where you think that dark wood actually is. A second way that the opening of Inferno and the opening of Purgatorio are linked is both the first cantos in both of them have a descent. Dante tries to climb that mountain and then falls back down it because of the beasts in Purgatorio, Canto 1. Dante and Virgil descend to the very shores of Purgatory to catch the reed. These moments are different, of course. In Inferno 1, Dante descends the mountain because of fear. In Purgatorio 1, Dante descends the mountain because he's in need of cleansing. Now, I want to come back to that in just a second. We've talked about how swapping the globe up and down and what's really a descent and what's really not a descent. Okay, yeah, fine enough. And that's all fun mind games. But just for the moment, from the perspective of the pilgrim, both Cantos 1 of Purgatorio and Inferno have descents in them. Now, let me come back to that cleansing bit. They go and get the reed or the rush, the water plant, and they wash the grime off Dante's face. Well, Virgil washes the grime off Dante's face. There are a lot of critics who read that as a purification moment, some kind of sacramental purification I have to tell you, I don't. I read it as a cleanup. Uh, Cato says, you know, he can't meet the messengers from heaven with all that dirt on his face. Go clean him up. Maybe there's an allegory of purification there. But the reason I hesitate on that is because there are so many more dramatic purifications ahead in Purgatorio. Dante is going to get actually physically and unequivocally purified over the course of Purgatorio. This moment doesn't quite seem like that to me. It seems like more of a ritual washing of the hands or a cleanup moment in which you just clean up before you go into church or go in towards something sacred. You can argue with me on that, and believe me, most critics would, but we can say for sure that both of the opening cantos of the first two canticles, Inferno and Purgatorio, involve descents. 
the sun also rises in both Inferno 1 and Purgatorio 1. In Inferno 1, it rises over that hill that Dante is climbing, that he eventually falls back down. And in Purgatorio Canto 1, they stand there and watch the sky go from orange to rosy to the sun actually up and chasing Capricorn around the zodiac so the sun rises in both cantos however of course the sun keeps rising in purgatorio dante falls back down the hill in inferno and seems to come back down into darkness certainly below the level of which the sun's light would hit him in purgatorio the sun is continuing on its journey But there is definitely a linking between the sun's rising. And maybe there's something thematic here. The sun can rise at the beginning of Inferno, but it can't keep rising. And you can think about that symbolically, allegorically, what that means for Inferno versus what that means for Purgatorio. In both of the second cantos of the two canticles, we have a glimpse of heaven. In Canto 2 of Inferno, Virgil gives his whole story about Beatrice and Lucy and perhaps the Virgin, and we get this glimpse of what it must be like up in heaven. In Canto 2 of Purgatorio, we get a glimpse of the angel from the bow. Not a glimpse, I mean, we see the angel and the brightness of the light. In both cases, we have these kind of echoes of paradise. Now, we don't get really get a full vision of heaven in either case. I mean, we do know that Beatrice is up sitting with the saints and that Lucy calls her and she's been called by a greater lady who we think might be the virgin if you interpret it that way. Okay, yeah, fair enough. And the angel is, again, a glimpse of paradise. Both Canto 2s of Inferno and Purgatorio offer us a glimpse of of paradise ahead. There's an inversion going on between the two cantos. In Inferno, Canto 1, Dante is center stage and Virgil appears. In Canto 2 of Inferno, Virgil is center stage with Dante essentially providing some commentary. I am not Aeneas. I'm not Paul. Why should I take this journey? And then Virgil launches into his long monologue. You'll notice that in Purgatorio, it's reversed. The first canto of Purgatorio, Virgil is center stage, washing up Dante and also speaking to Cato. And in canto two, Dante is center stage with the angel's arrival and then Casela particularly. So there's an inversion between the two. The fancy word might be a chiasmus between the two cantos. And it strikes me that that is extremely intentional given how deliberate it looks. And finally, here's a little bit of interpretive quandary for you. In Inferno, Cantos 1 and 2, the mission is clear. Virgil lays it out. You know, you're going to see the damned. You're going to see the souls purgating themselves in the fire, which we're going to find out is actually not true. But okay, there's not a ton of fire in Purgatorio. So anyway, but Virgil says you're going to see the souls purgating themselves in the fire. And then in Paradiso, you'll see those that have gone on to bliss. So the journey ahead is completely clear. So let's set off on this path. 
in Purgatorio, the way is not terribly clear. The mission is to be purified. We know that. But no one seems to know the way except up. There doesn't even seem to be a clear path. It seems as if when they set off in Inferno, there is actually a path. Okay, walk this path. Walk with me, and we're going to go down through Inferno. And yes, they keep kind of running around the circles or a little bit around the circles as they go down. But it's still a pretty obviously clear path to Virgil. He knows the way. Now, Virgil doesn't seem to know the way, but neither do any of those souls off the boat. Nobody seems to know the way. Cato said, go down, wash yourself, and then you'll find another way up the mountain. Well, where? Where is this thing that Cato promised? This is all very intriguing, that in Inferno, the directionality would be more certain than in Purgatorio. You would expect the opposite. You would expect Inferno to have more wandering around and Purgatorio to be more, just go this way, purgate yourself in this way, get to heaven this way. It would seem to be clearer. At this point in Purgatorio, it's not. And I think there is a nicely ironic structure being built that the way is clear in Inferno. It's not so clear yet in Purgatorio. There's our comparison and contrast between both the first two cantos of Purgatorio and the two cantos of Purgatorio with the first two of Inferno. This seems to be an important little bit to just raise these questions with you because the more you read comedy the more you realize that the structure of the thing the architecture of this poem is enormous immense like a giant cathedral this thing is built to last like a gothic cathedral because its architecture is so intense subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode of it please rate it do all those things i always ask you a comment. You know the whole thing. Mostly, thanks for being with me on this walk across Dante's known universe. We're going to talk a little bit about purgatory and where the idea comes from in our next episode, and then we'll be on to Cantos 3 and 4. I'm Mark Scarborough. I'll see you next time.